Well, greetings, everybody. Welcome once again to the Rec Poker Podcast, officially sponsored by Running Aces Casino and Racetrack. I am your host, Steve Fredland, and today we are on part five of the rebuilding of my strategy. And let me tell you this, I'm, I feel like I'm pretty messed up. Like, uh, I started going down this rabbit hole and then got introduced to this idea of GTO and should I be GTO or exploitive? And so I'm kind of in the middle of running two streams. One is sharing with you the feedback from the questions, and two is starting to ask the question about what does this all mean in a GTO context. So uh, just being fully transparent, uh, that I'm sort of uh, walking two paths as I look at rebuilding my strategy and understanding GTO. Uh, And so some of this may be a little bit uh, disjointed, but I'll do the best I can to kind of sort this out. Uh, But the approach today is really to go through the questions that I had asked prior to my GTO insight and go through that, go through the the input that I received from other players and kind of sort that out, but all kind of with this context of I've got the GTO impact looming. And what's interesting is, is a number of the players that provided feedback are already looking at this from a GTO perspective. So some of the feedback already has that incorporated into it, and I just hadn't recognized that initially. So I feel like I'm sort of having this awakening around uh, what GTO is, and uh, you are having a front row seat uh, at my emerging understanding of what that is. And hopefully this is helpful to some of you who have struggled with this, some of you who uh, also, like me, weren't really introduced to this concept. Uh, And so I'll do the best I can to share what I'm learning uh, and make it uh, accessible uh, to everybody in a way that's uh, understandable uh, as well. So I'm going to share the feedback uh, on the remainder of the questions that I had. Uh, I may not uh, spend a ton of time digging in. I may just be sharing the feedback and letting it be what it is uh, because I still need to sort out some other things before I can really draw some conclusions. Uh, But we'll talk about that a little bit. Uh, Some of it's going to be around uh, what do we do when we face three bets uh, after we've raised under the gun or from early position. Uh, Should we use binary ranges or mixed ranges, meaning should we always uh, fold or open certain hands or should we be doing uh, different hands a certain percentage of the time? Uh, Also, what bet size should we use uh, under the gun or early position? And uh, should we have a limping strategy under the gun at all? Uh, so we'll look at all of that uh, input from uh, from Twitter and the different folks. Uh, but before I go forward, a couple of quick things I want to remind you of. Uh, John Somsky, uh, first of all, thank you to you for uh, being our latest uh, Patreon supporter. I appreciate that. Uh, if you want to support what we're doing, obviously this is free content. Uh, but, man, your support and encouragement is huge, especially as we look at potentially expanding and doing some training things and some other things and connecting you with some of the top level pros. I'd love to have your support. You can go to patreon.com slash recpoker. And for as little as $1 a month, you can support what we're doing out here. So thanks to John uh, and the others who are already supporting us. Also, Running Aces as our official sponsor. Uh, just a reminder, they are running the Midwest Poker Classic. It's going on. It's just starting now. A ton of events through September 30th where the main event is going to be culminating there. Uh, and this weekend on Sunday, they have the Optimum, a $200 buy-in, uh, which includes the, uh, I guess, the add-on. It's a big blind anti-format. Uh, they also have, uh, during the next week or two, a seniors event, tag team, black chip bounty, six max. Uh, so go to runaces.com for all the details there. I think you're going to enjoy a lot of the uh, tournaments that they have going on there. So uh, let's get into uh, the initial questions that I asked here and the feedback. 
Uh, so what I'll do is I will share the question, uh, what happened on Twitter as far as the, the masses feedback, uh, then the written feedback that I got, and then you will hear some audio clips from the folks that submitted audio. So I'm just going to run through these. I'm not going to spend a lot of time uh, analyzing these things. I'll let them be what they are for now because, frankly, uh, as I mentioned before, I'm a little bit confused on <laughs> on what I should do with all this information, so I'm just going to let the information be what the information is. Uh, you may have to draw your own conclusions at this point, and I'll be drawing mine uh, kind of in the broader context of stuff that I'm wrestling with regarding GTO. So the first question I want to talk about today is I asked this. I said, if I'm under the gun with 50 big blinds, and I raise and I get three bet by someone with position on me. What should be my desired goal for the split between how often I four bet versus call versus fold? For example, should I be uh, four betting 25% of the time, calling 50% of the time, folding 25% of the time? Like, what should be my reaction? And it doesn't mean that you have to stick with a specific target, but what it means is this would help me shape my opening range. Um, if I know sort of how often I want to react a certain way to four bets, it'll help me shape the range of hands that I initially open with anyway, uh, if that makes sense. So I put this question out on Twitter and basically asked that with uh, different choices. I had four different choices and the responses were, uh, a slight favorite. 37% of the folks said, uh, they would target 25% four betting, 50% calling 25% folding. And about the same amount, 34%, said their splits would be 20, 40, 40. And then 29% of the folks said uh, 10, 80, 10. So they would four bet 10% of the time, call 80% of the time, and fold 10% of the time. Those three options were pretty split. I mean, there's a slight favorite, uh, but with uh, less than 50 votes, uh, it, statistically significant uh, was not a term I would use to describe it. So those three are pretty much split. The only one that uh, was was far different, got zero votes, was 40-40-20. So that one is uh, to be able to four bet 40% of the time. Uh, people just felt like that was too much. So I think that probably implies that uh, your range is too tight if you're going to be four betting 40% of the time. So if you look at those three answers, it's it's somewhere between four betting 10 to 25% of the time, calling 40 to 80% of the time, and folding 10 to 40% of the time. So uh, in all in all, I'd say uh, it seems to be somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, a 20-40-40 split or uh, maybe 20-50-30 is maybe uh, the right option. So yeah, I'd say 20, 50, 30 seems to be the kind of the aggregate total. So to be able to four bet 20% of the time, call 50% of the time, and fold 30% of the time seems to be uh, what Twitter uh, would suggest. Now, I received a comment from Mike Engelhop. He's a rec player, but he has uh, studied uh, GTO uh, quite a bit, and I do play with Mike in a home league. Uh, fantastic guy. Uh, he's a math guy as well. So uh, this is right up his alley. But Mike says this, uh, this is where the minimum defense frequency can come into play. However, if I have a comfortable stack range in a tournament and I'm opening 8 to 10% under the gun, I can't see ever folding to a normal 3-bet size. Uh, and first of all, I'll just interject there. Uh, so Mike sees never folding, but of course, he's also talking about only opening 8 to 10% of the time. So if your range is a lot tighter like that, you've got hands that are more defensible. So uh, anyway, Mike's, Mike would open 8 to 10% of the time and probably never fold to a normal 3-bet size. He goes on to say, I'm only calling or raising because my range is just too strong. 
Generally speaking, because I know I'm going to be overcalling because I don't fold, I need to have a reason to decide to re-raise instead of just calling with everything, including aces. Good stuff, Mike. Thank you. Hunter Sitchi, uh, a pro that you guys know maybe from Minnesota originally. I believe he's down in Florida now. Uh, he's uh, the owner of Check Shove Poker. Uh, Hunter says, facing a two and a half times three bet, you shouldn't be folding very often. If under the gun plus one is three betting an optimal range, you should only fold about 12% of the time. If the button is three betting an optimal range, you should only fold about 8% of the time. As far as calling versus forebetting goes, stack depth determines how frequently you should forebet shove. Typically, you should be forebetting 10 to 25% of your range. Figure out that percentage first, and then fill in the rest of your range with logical calling hands. He also says if you value his advice and interested in poker coaching resources, go to checkshovepoker.com. All right, thank you so much, Hunter. Now let's hear from the uh, audio that was submitted. I mean, that's like a... I mean, a really hard question to answer without knowing more about who 3-bet you, uh, how active have we been, but let's just say we have no table image and they likewise, we don't know anything about them. I I probably want to be uh, folding a good at least half of my hands and then from there calling and 4-betting a maybe like roughly even split like uh probably call it 30 35 percent of the time four betting 10 to 20 percent of the time so say you get three bet by someone in position what should your desired goal for the percentage split between how often you four bet or call or fold again very important to be very specific about this so that you are somewhere or somewhat near balanced also what are the stack sizes here, right? You have to be way more cautious for betting whenever you are shallow stacked because you're just essentially all in, right? Whereas if you are deeper stacked, there's more room to four bet and then bluff. Also, what are the pot odds we're getting? Did we make it three big blinds and the opponent made it 13 big blinds? If that's the case, we need to be quite tight. Especially if we have 50 big blinds because if we four bet, it's just going to be all in, right? Um, as opposed to like, let's say we min raised and the opponent made it five big blinds when we're playing 50 big blinds deep. Now we have way more room to four bet, right? Because we can four bet to 13 big blinds and then still fold to a shove. So all of that is very relevant. And this is why, as I said in the last um, the last podcast episode, you can't just think in terms of broad generic strategies because it's not ideal. You always want to ask, what am I trying to accomplish and how do I go about achieving that? So anyway... Um, for a normal situation where we're somewhat deep stacked, I'm typically going to be four betting for value with aces, kings, queens, and ace, king. That means I'm getting it all in with these hands in most scenarios whenever we're not more than you know, 100 big blinds deep or so. Um, also, I'm four betting as a bluff with ace, queen, and ace, 10 suited, which means I'm folding those if I get jammed on. Yes, we're folding ace, queen if we get jammed on. I'm going to be calling ace, queen suited, ace, jack suited, king, queen suited, jacks, tens, nines, eights, sevens. Although you could definitely fold nines, eights, and sevens if you feel like it. And I'm just going to fold the king jack suited, queen jack suited, and jack ten suited. If you break this down using the range analyzer, that has us four betting for value with 32 point, or 33% of our range and four betting as a bluff with 15% of our range. Now, that's a little bit value heavy. As you get deeper stacked, you can have more bluffs. Um, if you're playing really deep stacked, you can have something like 66% bluffs. Um, whenever you look at only 4-bet for value and 4-bet for bluff. Here we have a 2-to-1 ratio value to bluff, 
which is definitely value heavy. And that is because when you raise under the gun, people should not be three betting you very often. I mean, it's a mistake to be three betting under the gun for the most part. Um, I, I typically just don't three bet under the gun raisers because it's not a good play because they should have a very, very strong range that is easy to defend. And as you see here, we're, we're like pushing it, making folds with stuff like King Jack suited. I mean, that's a pretty great hand. So then we're calling with 40% of our range and folding 11% of our range. That's a really low fold percentage, but that's because our range is strong. And again, as we're getting uh, worse pot odds, we should be folding more hands, right? If we make it two big blinds and our opponent makes it four, well, we're not folding anything because now we're just getting amazing pot odds. Hi, Steve. Kenna James here with Kenna James Poker and Life Coaching for a better balanced game and a more fulfilling experience, both on and off the felt. This is a great question. If I get three bet by someone with position on me, what should be my desired goal for the split between how often I four bet versus call versus fold? Uh, what a great question. Um, I think that it should be weighted significantly to the four bet or fold. So I'll give you uh, a framework of 40, 20, 40. Calling out a position and giving up the betting lead not only caps your range too often, but it also makes it too difficult to defend profitably on too many boards. So I think this frequency, while it will depend on stack size and the profile of, of the opponent who is three betting you, generally I think we could say a 40, 20, 40 uh, percentage range would be good. If I get three bet by someone with position on me, what should be my split for how often I four bet versus call versus fold? Um, honestly, I don't have a percentage split for this. Um, I think this this is very opponent dependent and also dependent on the three bet size. So, you know, if I open to five hundred under the gun with the big blind of two hundred, and I get three bet to a thousand there's probably not a hand that I'm going to fold. There's probably not a hand I'm going to fold because the three bet size is so small and I have so much equity to stay in the hand. Even if he has aces, right? And I have 10-9 suited, I'm not going to fold. So um, really dependent on the three bet size, so on the other hand, if I open to 500 with a big blind of 200 and I get three bet to 5,000, right? I'm going to fold almost everything unless I, you know, I, I, unless I have a really good hand, right? So um, the three bet size is very important to this question. Um, but in general, if it's a pretty standard three bet size, like if I open to 500 at 200 big blind, and let's say I get three bet to 1,200 or 1,300, I'm going to be looking to call a lot of hands. Um, again, percentage is really hard for me to say because it's still kind of you know dependent, but I would say I'm going to be calling, uh, we'll say like 70% of the time, 75% of the time, and folding maybe... 10 to 15% of the time, and then four betting maybe 10 to 15% of the time, some kind of split like that. 
Um, especially when I'm opening under the gun, like my range, my under the gun and under the gun one ranges are going to be tighter. Um, so most of the hands that I have there are going to be hands that realize a lot of equity post flop or that already have a lot of equity. So I'm not going to be folding a lot if I'm opening under the gun. Hey, Rack Poker Podcast listeners, this is Derek Smith with feedback on the rebuilding of Steve Fredlin, the poker player. In rec games, when you get three bet out of position, I really feel like you can just fold the bottom 25% and raise the top 25% and call things in between. In tougher games, you'll obviously have to mix in a little bit of your bottom end of your range into your uh, three betting range there. But in the games we're used to, I'm looking to call a lot of three bets, particularly if I'm playing that 10% range. I'd maybe fold about 10% of my range if I'm playing a 17% range first. And the reason for that is I just have found that at about a two to two and a half X three bet, it's plus EV to call a three bet, whether in position or out and set mine. At about two and a half to three percent, there's right around an even break point. At about three to three point five, there is a small negative uh, expected value, but of course the implied odds are pretty huge. But then at about three and a half X or higher, you become sort of negative EB. So EV, excuse me. So I lean towards a three betting or calling range higher than betting. I guess at about a 10% range, I'm probably going to play like 40% three bets, 60% calls, and roughly 0% folds if I'm in position. If I'm out of position, I'm probably going to be a 25-50-25. At 17%, I might change it up a little bit. If I'm in position, I'd probably be at about 40% call, or excuse me, uh, three bet, 50%. Uh, call and 10% fold. So I'm just folding out the smallest parts of those 36 hands, so the three or four worst hands there, and trying to call and set mine. Um, if I get three three bet in a position, and somebody's in position on me, um, I am playing just premium hands, and this is where it's going to be a little bit different. If you're playing 15 to 20% of hands under the gun, you might look at this differently. But maybe there's some other people that are just beginning that are... Um, uh, a little bit more playing style like me that don't like to be uh, out of position. And so with my really tight starting hand range, um, I'm only playing premium hands here. So I really think I should be forbetting a lot, um, at least 50% of the time, maybe calling 25% of the time and only folding about 25% of the time, depending on what other activity has been going, going on at, at the table. Uh, might be even folding less percentage of that. Um, again, depending on if there's a three bet and then another raise behind or something like that, I may um, I might get rid of a couple of those premium hands. Greetings, rec poker players. This is Jerry Kniff contributing to the podcast. If I'm three bet by someone with position on me, I typically do not four bet. I know that is a improvement I need to make in my game and probably four bet more along the lines of 10 to 15 percent calling around 65 percent and folding around 25 percent but again this also depends on stages of the tournament and stack sizes at the table this is rob washam for the rec poker podcast against a three bet considering a four bet a call or a fold by trying to come up with a balanced strategy is getting closer to GTO. 
whereas I would tend toward the exploitive and use factors like my image and my read on the three better. If the three better is a nit, I would tend to four bet with monsters, call with hands that can flop well, and fold everything else. If the three better is known to get out of line, I may four bet with a polarized range and call with the middle of my range. Under the gun strategy, John Somsky. If I get three bet by someone who has position on me, I would think I might four bet about 20% of the time, call about 60 to 65%, and then fold 15 to 20%. Again, that's based upon a really tight starting range, meaning I have more strength in that range, so I don't need to fold as many hands as I might otherwise. All right, thanks everybody. And now the next question is, if I am under the gun with 50 big blinds and I get three bet by someone out of the blinds, meaning I will have position on them, uh, what should be my desired goal for the split between four betting, calling, and folding? Now note this is a little bit different. So here we got three bet by somebody that we will have position on. The other question was uh, somebody that would be out of position on. So in this case, uh, Mike Engelhop said, uh, same as above, I'm never folding, but now since I have position, I will be four betting more. Sometimes I four bet with all my red hands, red aces, red kings, red queens, suited hands that are hearts and diamonds, etc. If I want to crank it up a notch, I'll four bet with all hands where the red suit is the highest value, or if a pair contains a heart. I need to have a heart to four bet. If I want to crank it down a notch, then only hands with a heart in it. So Mike is uh, using a mixed strategy here where sometimes he's four betting, sometimes he's not, and he's using the suits of the cards to determine uh, that frequency or to make sure that over the long run he settles in on that frequency. And Hunter Sitchi says the blind should be three betting much larger with a much tighter range of hands. So even though you have position on them, you should generally give them much more respect. The optimal response usually looks like 50% fold, 25% call, and 25% four bet all in. And he also says, again, check out Check Shove Poker if you want more information on that. All right, thanks, Mike and Hunter. Uh, let's turn it over to the audio that was submitted. Somebody three bets you out of the blinds. The only difference is we're probably going to be calling with a few more of the hands that we would have originally been folding when we were out of position, but just being in position grants us some luxury and again that too depends on their sizing if we open a 2.5 and they three bet out of the big blind to 11 we're folding a few more hands and if they make a mistake and only three bet to like 6.5 like they're giving us a great giving us a great price when we have position and if if we're 100 blinds deep we're going to be calling with a lot more of our range there when that's a small three bet say so one of the blinds three bets what does that do um you can call a little bit more but when people make it uh, when people three bet from out of the blinds, they typically make it bigger, so they cut down on your implied odds. But again, this is a very different situation if we're playing 50 big blinds deep as opposed to 100 big blinds deep as opposed to 150 big blinds deep. I would lean a lot heavier on the call and fold and less on the four bet from the blinds. And that goes to the basic principle that you want to lengthen the hand when you're in position and shorten it when you're out of position because you're going to force your opponent to make more decisions while they're out of position. So... Against the blinds, I like to make that look more like 20, 50, 30, uh, with 20% four betting, 50% call, and 30% fold. And those are, again, very general numbers, but that's what I would uh, give you as a guide. If I get three bet 
by someone out of the blinds and I have position on them. Um, honestly, my approach is going to be pretty similar. Maybe I call a little bit more, but there's also the consideration that if someone is three betting me out of the blinds and I'm an under the gun raiser, they're going to have a tighter range than someone who's three betting me from the button. So honestly, I don't know. I don't know that having position makes a world of difference as far as splitting up my percentages. Um, but uh, I would say like in this scenario, I'm, I'm probably for betting less, slightly less um, because I have positions. So if I want to play post flop, you know, there, well, there's more incentive for me to, to go post flop when I'm in position than when I'm out of position. So um, maybe for betting slightly less in general for betting a very small percentage of the time period. Um, but maybe slightly less when I'm in position. If I get three bet by somebody where I'm going to have position on them, I'm a little bit more comfortable in position and I found it more profitable. And so here, if I'm feeling like a four bet is going to chase them away, um, I'm feeling like I'm probably behind if I'm just playing, I'm ahead because I'm playing just premium hands. So I don't really want to chase them away. So I'll probably call with a little higher percentage of the, of the, uh, the hands. So instead of four betting 50% of the time and calling 25% of the time, I would probably um, look at optimally being more in the range of 25, 50, 25, where I'm only um, re-raising 25% of the time, calling a little bit more often, and then still only folding a, a small one out of four. I'm not sure if that's optimal. That's why this is a great question to hear what other people think, um, not only pros, but other rec players that are uh, at different skill levels. If I'm three bet by someone who I will have position on, such as out of the blinds, I usually default call and very rarely fold. But again, I need to work on increasing my four betting range. I would tend to use the same decision process when responding to a three bet out of the blinds. And if I get three bet by someone out of the blinds so that I'll have position on them, then I'm much more likely to call. I might raise maybe 10% of the time, call about 85% of the time, and then fold about 5%. All right, good stuff. Uh, let's move on to the next question. Whatever hand range I decide I'm playing under the gun with 50 big blinds, should I have a binary range? which means these hands I open and these hands I do not, or should my range include hands that are sometimes I open, sometimes I do not? And what determines whether you do or do not do that? And Mike Inglehop said, uh, as, as I mentioned above, I do like to sometimes raise and sometimes not, and I like to use suits to help me decide. And Hunter Sitchie said, I think it's a mistake to use binary opening ranges because it does not allow you to adapt to your environment. Artificial intelligence a software like Poker Snowy or PO Solver will frequently use mixed strategies preflop. I typically instruct my students to always fold Poker Snowy's partial opens at tough tables and always raise with them at weak tables. Uh, once again, check out Check Shove Poker if you're interested in what Hunter has to say. And let's turn it over to the audio. 
fact that you have four different suits in a deck, I feel like it's not that hard to implement once I know what some of those hands are that that I do that I do X percent of the time one thing, Y percent one one of the ways. So for example, like I already talked about my like I might open six five suited with one of the suits but not the others. I mean you can do that same kind of thing with a hand like ace queen, I might say, all right, if I have black ace queen, I'm going to, by black, I mean either it could be either offsuit or the suit of variety or however, however I want to set it up. I could say today, all right, the black ones I'm going to four bet, the, the red ones I'm going to call. Like a lot of times I just enter the tournament saying, all right, we're going to start with so like there's certain spots I know that I'm going to try to do stuff by balancing 25% of the time. Certain spots I know that they're like 50% hands, etc. So I might decide that today hearts are 25%, which therefore means the red suit or the the red ones are going to be 50%. I say 50%, that means 50% I'm going to side towards the more aggressive or plain type of action. So that mean in that scenario, then if I have black ace queen and I get three bet, I'm because I black's more on the passive side today, I'm gonna just call with it, but it was the red ones I'm gonna four bot with it. Like that kind of thing you can you can set up with a little little bit of preparation outside of the table, which I I like doing that because that helps uh, helps give me better board coverage when constructing pre-flop hand ranges. Like the easiest way is to easiest way in constructing is just have everything hundred percent and zero percent and that might be how you get to your twenty percent hand. I'd rather stretch that 20% across more hands. So some of those hands I'm folding half the time, but some of them I'm playing half the time. And but I'm still coming to 20% range. But the way I do it, then I I'm capable of hitting a lot more different board textures instead of being a predominantly big card hand range. Like I I don't want people to feel like the board comes seven high and they can just continuation bet one or two times and blow me off my hand because. I can only have overcards or a big pair. Like I, it's nice to have that kind of luxury. Next, you say, with that range I just gave you, am I raising all these hands 100% of the time and folding everything else, or do I mix it up? Whenever I am playing online or playing against very good players, I typically just stick with these exact ranges. You really just don't need to mix it up too much. I think a lot of people try to get fancy and justify playing more hands than they should like in reality right here we're supposed to raise 10 nine suited some percentage of the time and pocket sixes some percent of the time and king queen and ace jack offsuit some small percentage of the time but i am definitely a big fan of developing strategies that are actually implementable if you try to run a game theory optimal program in this situation it's going to tell you to have you know some hands like 78% of the time and some hands 62% of the time and some hands 40% of the time and some hands 39% of the time and Let's get real. We're not trying to do that here. So I typically don't get too bogged down in that. And I think it's probably a waste of your time until you're playing super, super high stakes when it comes to um, adding a few mixes into your range where you're raising sometimes and not raising sometimes. Um, I will, however, just widen the range in general. Like maybe just start opening king, queen, and ace-jack offsuit and pocket sixes and 10-9 suited, 9-8 suited, 8-7 suited. These are all hands you can certainly raise if your opponents are weaker or bad or they don't three bet you. I mean, if you're not going to get three bets very often, you can just start opening quite wide with especially the suited hands that flop well when you're playing deep stacks because the only way you really get crushed is by people three betting you a lot and not letting you see the flop. 
it is such a disaster for you to raise and then have to fold preflop. And if that doesn't happen, open wide. So that's, that's a very, very important concept. Now, your next question has to do with your approach. I say not binary. You're not a computer. Sometimes, as you would say, is much better because so much of poker is not ones and twos. It's not black and white. There's a lot more gray. And that's difficult for a lot of people, but that's the challenge of the game. So I would lean more on uh, sometimes you do and sometimes you don't as far as your frequency guy, like when you should or when you shouldn't. The gray comes in based, you'll get that with experience based on the stack size, mostly of your opponent and their profile. You can also use randomizers like your watch or or different a randomizer to guide you in that in that way. At, when I construct my range, when I when I take into consideration my opponents, my stack sizes, all the factors that that make me decide or land to the conclusion of what opening range I'm going to have, I'm going to keep that binary. So I'm going to opening these hands and these hands and these hands. I'm going to be folding these hands and these hands. Um, I think it can be a little bit too complex to um, randomize your your opening hands. So like, you know, ace do suited 50% of the time. I'm going to open it 50% of the time. I'm going to fold it. I avoid that, especially pre-flop. As to having a binary range, this is sort of that 7% we talked about between 10% and 17% hands. Sometimes you've got that 7% where you can use your proverbial gut and utilize those as hands you're going to mix in and or decide not to play. I like to have binary hand range. For me, again, being a little bit less experienced, I'm trying to simplify the game for myself. So have hands that I just always will fold or always will play, at least as a starting place. And then kind of look at if the table is going to allow me to play a few more hands, then I can I can go outside of that. But um, at least have a starting place for me where I, I do have a, a binary range. I don't believe this is optimal. Again, I, I feel like as I gain experience, I hope to be able to become a little more flexible. And like we hear all the time, the answer will depend. Well, when I feel more comfortable that I understand when I would play hands outside of that binary range, and I understand that what it depends on more, then I'm, I'm more likely to open up my range to some of those types of plays. When developing a range, for most of us, I don't consider a binary range. But if one were to have a binary range, I think Factors determine whether you raise or fold a certain hand, such as a suited one gapper, would depend on stack sizes and stage of the tournament. I would suggest the latter. I would use a range that is somewhat elastic. Based on table dynamics, there are hands you sometimes open and sometimes not. And as far as deciding what hands to open, my default is fairly binary. I either particularly in early position uh, under the gun, I'll either open it or I won't. However, the tables are different and there's always uh, reasons to deviate from your basic plan. So if you have a maniac on your left, you may need to tighten up a little bit if they're constantly raising. And 
depending upon how, if they're paying attention, you might only want to raise with hands that you are guaranteed to be able to call or re-raise with. Um, likewise, if the table is very passive and folding a lot, you might want to open a larger variety of your hands because they're going to be folding a bunch to you and it's just a way to get chi uh, taken chips. This can be particularly effective uh, when on the bubble or if there are other situations where everyone at the table is playing particularly tight. Okay, so now I asked, if I decide to raise under the gun with 50 big blinds, what bet sizing should I use? Or what factors should impact that? Uh, to start with, I did ask a Twitter poll on this one. I said, if I have the comfortable stack and I raise under the gun, what bet sizing should I use? And I got a little under 60 votes on this one with a little over half the folks saying two and a half big blinds. So that seems to be the more popular choice, followed by three big blinds at 31%, three and a half big blinds at 16%, and 2% said four big blinds. So 82% uh, of the folks uh, had it either two and a half or three big blinds, uh, and it was kind of a decreasing thing. So most folks, two and a half bigs, and then steadily declining as we go. Uh, Brian Berthume on Twitter said, uh, again, I think it depends on the strength of your hand and the players in position on your table and their stack sizes that should factor into your bet sizing. How much can I get this fish to call? So it sounds like Brian is adjusting his, um, his bet sizing under the gun to uh, the players at the table. Hunter Sitchi says, your bet size or raise size is determined by what you're trying to accomplish with your entire range the odds you want to offer your opponent, and the stack-to-pot ratio you'd like to create. Uh, so uh, kind of a vague answer there, but it sounds like Hunter would say it's pretty dynamic, um, so there's not a specific uh, answer for that. So let's turn it over to the audio that was submitted. I would Your race should generally be smaller in position and larger out of position. So perhaps a good guide would be 2.5 to 3.5x the razors, uh, two bet when you're in position and 3.5 to 5.0 when you're out of position. Uh, I like to really shut down pots more when I'm out of position and lengthen them when I'm in position. So that's a good guide for you in that. I tend to stick to a pretty, um, a pretty set bet sizing regardless of my position pre-flop. Um, I think that like I was saying with this previous question, um, I think there's some complexity that we just don't need to add. So I, I think if we just say, okay, we're going to raise this amount every time, it, it just it's easier for me, and it and it avoids some confusion, and it, against especially against tough opponents who maybe can pick up. You know, if you're varying your bet size, chances are that that can be exploited. And people who are paying attention can can know what you're doing with different bet sizes, right? So um, to to avoid that, I just keep my bet size the same. I like to go to about 2.2x um, when there's an ante involved. I like to open open fairly small, um, which gives me, you know, I'm, I'm risking a minimum amount to win the blinds and annies basically every time. And I think that's the strategy I like to approach, especially when I'm opening a wider range of hands. You know, if I have a tighter range of hands, like maybe it's pre-ante and I'm op only opening 10%, maybe I'll bump it up to 2.5x or even 3x, right? So if I'm 
the 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 reasoning behind that is if I'm if I'm opening a tighter range of hands, I'm going to be wanting to get more equity in there pre-flop. Where if I'm opening a looser range, I'm going to be wanting to give myself the, the best chance to win the blinds and annies with risking a minimal minimal amount, right? So um, I, I, I land on about 2.2x. That's kind of what I shoot for. Um, anywhere between 2.1 and 2.3x is generally what I like to raise for. And that's going to stay consistent whether I'm under the gun or on the button. Um, this is a very big weakness, I believe, in my game. So I'm not uh, uh, confident in this at all, but I'm... I generally just have pretty much the same under the gun um, raise. I'm usually two and a half to three and a half X. And that's kind of something I've read in some books about if you're consistently inconsistent, you're hard to read. Meaning um, whether I have aces or whether I have um, something much lower in my range, if I'm always raising the same amount it's then harder to read what exactly my hand is so that's where i would i would stay again listening to, uh, i look forward to listening to other people and hear what they have to say about that i would stick to one raise size regardless of the hand strength under the gun i would go with three big blinds as my default sizing as far as your opening raise size um, i don't let the cards influence my raise size or i try not to anyway uh, I do consider the effective stack sizes. Smaller effective stack sizes tend to uh, lend themselves to smaller opening ranges because it's still a, a larger percentage of the stack. My um, position, I tend to bet more in earlier position to prevent an avalanche of callers behind me. Uh, when I'm in later position, a bunch of people have already folded out, so I might be able to bet a little bit smaller. Not only that, but I'm also in later position going to be betting with a wider range so they aren't as strong of hand so putting less money in the pot is also advantageous there. I also uh, base my bet sizing based upon how players at this particular table are reacting to various sizes. In the end I'm trying to get one or two callers at most Folding everyone out and just taking down the pot is usually an all right thing to do as well. Steve Barton here from the Heads Up Poker podcast. Uh, we have everything from a min raise to all in. Okay, For the average uh, open, what I do is I open to 3.1x. So if the small blind is 50, the big blind is 100. I'll open to, um, well, at a live poker table, that would probably be 325. Okay, I wouldn't make it 300 there. I would throw in an extra 25 chip. All right. Now, the reason I'm doing this is because of a coaching session I had a few months ago before the World Series of Poker. I got a coaching session from Alexander Fitzgerald. He's a rock star in the uh, tournament poker world. And he looked over my database and he did an experiment with one of his students. His student was typically raising between two and a half and three X. And he said, okay, for this month, what we're going to do is every single time you open from regardless of the position, you're going to raise to 3.1 instead of three. Now you wouldn't think this would make much of a difference, but it did. He got three bet 20% less. He logged thousands of hands that month. And what they found was that he was getting three bet less. That is very nice. 
is the bet sizing you would use. Again, I would refer back to earlier, are you focusing in and consciously playing a GTO style at this point where you are being very exact and consistent with your betting or are you playing more of an exploitative style and therefore are mixing up your bet sizing amounts. And I would just advocate for continuing to do the same at that point. Okay, and the final question for today, should I be considering an under-the-gun limping strategy with 50 big blinds? If so, what would be some parameters around that, uh, such as frequency, responses to a raise, how often would I want to respond to a raise with the three-bet caller fold, that sort of thing. So uh, to start out, I put it out on Twitter. Um, if I'm under the gun, what is the what is closest to the best limping strategy? And I gave some options, uh, and the one that was the most popular was 41% of the people said never, ever limp under the gun. But 35%, 35% of the people said uh, balance it with some premium and some speculative hands. 14% said limp some premium, and 10% said limp some speculative. So it's sort of interesting how across the board it is, uh, where basically 40% of the people are saying never, and uh, 60% of the people are saying yeah, it's okay to limp some. And about half of those that said it's okay to limp some, uh, half of them said balance it between premium and speculative. And then the other part was split between limping only some premium hands and the other said limping only some speculative hands. So uh, kind of interesting to see. Uh, there's a quite of a, a variety there uh, of feedback, but it's pretty much split 50-50 between never ever and yeah, there are situations where it makes sense. Uh, Brian Berthium says... Um, uh, I think your opponent's play has more to do with your limping than your stack size. If I have an aggressive position, players in position, uh, I'll limp all day long. Uh, Mike Inglehop says, if it's early in the tournament, I sometimes limp my usual 8 to 10% under the gun range because so many people overcall. I don't want to put a raise in and be in a pot with five people in a tournament with the worst position, minus the blinds, plus they will think I have a different range than I actually do. But generally, no, don't have a limping strategy from early position, especially in tournaments, unless you have the cojones to limp re-raise and re-raise big with hands that aren't pocket aces. I just don't think it's worth the risk. And Hunter Sitchi just says flat out, no, that's a terrible idea, and I honestly think the poker coaches who suggest such a thing are deliberately spreading misinformation. Uh, so <laughs> Hunter feels pretty strong about that, and you can check him out at Check Shove poker.com so with that uh, let's turn it over to the audio that was submitted then lastly uh should i be considering an under the gun limping strategy i'd say no because uh it just you know, a lot of the advantage of raising is by pressing blinds out of the pot and if you give the blinds the pot the possibility of getting to see a flop for free you're essentially just handing equity that you should have had and you're giving it to them for free so i like open raising or folding even under the gun if we're playing in a really loose game with lots of guys that like to either limp or cold call, the thing is, especially early in the tournament when everybody's doing that, if you're 100 blinds deep and you make it 2.5x and you get 5 callers, that's great. Now you built a 12-15 big black pot with pocket sixes. And yeah, sixes would have been a great hand to limp and see a flop with cheaper, but we didn't go that much to our stack to see a flop or see a flop that now has a huge pot and when we flop a set we get to actually win some chips from somebody instead of it being a tiny little pot so like uh, and then likewise now so that's what i'm talking about if we're deep and talking about limping or not where i'd say don't then now if we're only like 20 blinds deep and we limp we we don't want to have to limp fold like we we want to be able to raise and possibly 
take down the blinds and antes, and that's going to be a sizable stack gain or chip gain to our stack. So likewise there, that's scenario raising is better than limping. So I would just say don't ever limp under the gun. I know GTO programs have, do have limping built into an optimal range, but it's such a small subset that offers such a such a minimal, tiny, like barely any EV gain over just raising every time that for simplistic sake, you should just be raising or folding with all your hands that you're playing under the gun. And with that, I know I kind of stretched long here. I'll just cut it off and say that uh, you can check out Poker's Fun Tour at PIFT Poker on Twitter or PIFTPoker.com on the internet. And with that, good luck at the tables. Thanks. So should you be considering an under-the-gun limping strategy? I just don't. Um, if your opponents, again, are very, very weak and are not going to raise you very often at all, you may want to start limping with stuff like suited aces, um, good suited connected hands, all the pairs. These are just hands that are going to flop well, where you either know that you have a good draw or a nut hand right off the bat. You do not want to be limping with offsuit stuff pretty much ever. I think that's a recipe for disaster. Um, you can probably limp stuff like 8-7 suited, 6-5 suited, 5-4 suited, maybe 9-7 suited, 10-8 suited, etc. But I don't think the most games that I'm playing, at least, are that weak. And even then, you have to ask, when I limp with something like 6-5 suited under the gun, am I really happy very often? And I think you're going to find the answer is no. And especially in tournaments like um, live local tournaments, you usually just don't have very many big blinds. If you're sitting there with like a 40 big blind stack, you just can't limp from early position because someone's going to raise some portion of the time. So that denies your equity or makes you play a big pot from out of position with a junky hand, which kills your implied odds. Or if you do flop something, it's going to be like middle pair, bottom pair, and that's not really where you want to be from out of position. So I just do not use a limping range. I'm trying to think the last time I limped. It must have been like a year ago, maybe more. And I think it was something like ace four suited under the gun at a really, really, really weak table. And if you're playing medium and high stakes tournaments, you just don't find those very often. So anyway, um, be very careful when it comes to looking at a situation and saying, how do I play under the gun? Because that's a very, very big question. And it depends on the number of big blinds you're playing, and it depends on your opponent's strategy. I mean, I, I gave you a somewhat balanced strategy when I was discussing the uh, four-betting range of having some bluffs there. If you're playing against someone who just doesn't three-bet under the gun raisers unless they have aces, because they know you must have a good range because you're raised under the gun, well, clearly, you should fold everything besides aces, Right. So there are certainly times that you can be exploitable and make big folds, but again, that depends on your opponents. Other players think that under-the-gun raises are strong, and if they three-bet it much, look really strong, so they three-bet with all sorts of garbage. Well, clearly against them, you don't fold anything. So <sighs> poker stuff and trying to develop a very, very generic strategy is usually not the way to go about it. If you do develop a generic strategy, it needs to be very, very fundamentally sound. And also, you need to understand the adjustments you need to make depending on who you are against. So that's it for today. This has been Jonathan Little for PokerCoaching.com. Thanks for listening. Now, your last one uh, deals with back raising, meaning limping into the pot and then three betting uh, a raiser. We call that a back raise. I think back raising is a great strategy to implement when the following three things occur. You have an overly aggressive opponent acting after you. You have a loose table that calls as a high calling frequency, and you have a sub-premium type of hand or a tight image that you can leverage. 
Sub-premium, I mean nines, tens, jacks, or ace-queen. These are the type of hands that really don't flop well a lot of times or play uh, well unless you, you know, we hit a, hit a set. So I like to thin those fields. And one of the great ways to do that in a loose action table is to back raise, limp in and knowing somebody's going to try and squeeze around back and then come out with a heavy um, three bet. Uh, as uh, out of position squeeze or back raise to thin the field and take the pot heads up in a situation in which you probably have the best hand, again, against a loose, aggressive opponent. So those are great times in which to look to back raise and do that. And yes, I would implement that. And maybe that will give you the balance of your creativity to your otherwise solid GTO strategy. And finally, uh, should I be considering an under-the-gun limping strategy? Again, I'm going to say similar to the previous couple of questions. No, um, and this is to avoid complexity that I just don't think we need to bring to our game. Um, I do see limps. Um, I tend to just avoid them altogether. I think maybe there's an effective limping strategy that people use, but... um, I also think that it's hard to use a limping strategy effectively, and it's just not something that I've ever decided to practice. So I'm just going to say take it out altogether, never limp, and you can avoid the complexity of trying to figure out what a good limping strategy is um, because I don't think it's a very effective strategy to begin with. Uh, Yeah, so those are my answers to these questions. Hope it was insightful. Um, I've read some books and heard some pros that say absolutely not. Then I've heard some very good players and pros that have a limping strategy and talk about how they would use it. I kind of like to use um, a a limping strategy. Um, Starting without one, meaning my base strategy is not using one, but I've been at tables, especially in the tournaments, the lower tournaments I play, where the raising strategy does not do what I want it to do. Usually I like to narrow the field. Well, if you lead out, and no matter how much you lead out with, you're getting called by six people, that's um, that's not doing what I wanted the range to do, or the raise to do. So uh, there I w- might look to imply a limping strategy, and I'd like to hear more about some people that do it e- effectively. Um, there are also some hands that I feel flop better for winning um, big huge pots than others and I would use um, maybe more of those types of things where I don't mind if some other players are in maybe you're sitting with ace four suited and if the ace hits you're not feeling great about it but you're not really looking for the ace to hit you're looking for the flush draw in which case you don't mind six people being in and chasing their straights and chasing um, their two pair and that type of a thing. That's exactly what you're kind of looking for. So that's more the limping um, cards I've been looking at. And again, I'd love to hear what other people have to say so I can gain um, gain some knowledge in, in this area because this is not a strong part of my game right now. And hands that I would consider doing that would, with would be um, hands like a nutted hand if I'm pretty certain that somebody behind me is going to raise, I'm, I'm envisioning a very specific scenario of a player that I've dissected his game and, and 
for whatever reason, when he sees somebody limp under the gun, he, he raises. So that would be a scenario what I'd, where I would limp there. Uh, I might also limp at a passive table um, with something like uh, nine ten of hearts where nobody's ever raising. The only time they're ever raising is when they have aces or kings. That could be a profitable scenario to uh, to limp with some hands there, maybe like small pairs. Try to hit your set when you're when you're very certain that it's not going to get raised behind you. People are just limping with things like pocket nines. I would never limp under the gun. If the hand's not worth opening with a raise, it's not worth playing. These are my thoughts. I'll talk to you next time. As far as an open limping strategy, I almost never open limp. Uh, I might call a limper. And very rarely, in the blinds, I might limp. But under the gun, I don't think I'll ever open limp in that particular position, or almost never. So uh, I don't think it would be too wrong not to incorporate an open limping strategy. Um, I think it would be better to never open limp than to open limp too often. I look forward to hearing what everyone else has to say, and I hope you come up with a dynamite strategy. I do not think that you should have an under-the-gun limping strategy. I'm a believer in always raising first in and using some fold equity. You do not want to invite people into the pot. I do not like to play pots with five or six people to the flop. Like anyone, I'm not really a fan of under-the-gun limping, but I think particularly early on in like the cheaper daily MTTs and those types of games, you can limp and see flops four, six, seven-handed pretty regularly, and you might flop the world and be able to stack somebody at that point. So maybe you can limp with you know your ultra-speculative stuff but and get away with it, but I'd be more apt to just stick to 10 to 17%. All right. Well, thanks once again to everybody for submitting all of that uh, great feedback. Uh, so what's valid now in light of wanting to play GTO? Um, I guess I've got a few key takeaways from this first round of listening to this information. Uh, I, I've always thought of preflop ranges as binary, uh, either always raising, always calling or limping or always folding. And GTO uses the mixed strategy idea of having frequencies associated with each hand in the range. So uh, this whole thing is not only going to, going to cause me to reevaluate my 16% under-the-gun opening number, but what hands and what frequencies will be, be a part of that. So potentially I've got more hands that are now in my range, but with only a partial frequency. So maybe instead of having 16% of the hands that I always open with, maybe it's I've got 30% of hands that I sometimes do, sometimes don't open. I don't know. I've got to explore that, uh, but it's sort of interesting, and I think that that should be fun uh, to do. Uh, and I know I keep thinking about Mike Schneider talking about having board coverage, and so I'm wondering if if I think about those speculative hands that I want to open with, maybe I open up a wider range of speculative hands, but only in certain situations or with certain suits or whatever that is. So that's interesting to me. Uh, I also think that with bet sizing and especially limping, uh, I need to think about if I am playing GTO or exploitive in the current situation, uh, because that could impact my decisions. So like from a GTO perspective, I may never limp, but from an exploitive perspective, it may be part of a valid strategy. So that's going to be part of maybe my toggling back and forth. So if somebody says, is it okay to limp under the gun? I think my initial reaction should probably be, am I in a mode where I'm playing GTO 
in which case I would say, no, you shouldn't. Or am I in the mode where I'm playing exploitive, in which case I might say, yeah, there are situations where I would do that. Uh, so I think that's an interesting dynamic and part of the dichotomy of GTO versus exploitive play. And also, I really feel like I need to intentionally build a decent GTO strategy and a decent exploitive strategy and then really really understand when I'm playing which ones of those. Uh, what are the factors that impact it? Is, it? is it stage of tournament, like Kenna James might suggest? Is it player types, uh, like Brian Berthew might suggest? Uh, I don't know. So I need to really figure that out. Is it stack size? Is it table dynamics? What is actually happening going on there? So uh, next up, uh, I'm going to be doing more research into the theory and principles of GTO and really sharing with you some of the highlights uh, of what I find. Um, I think, you know, the the GTO and everything, there's a lot of numbers that are involved there. And of course, that's my, my, my bent. I'm an actuary by trade. I'm a capital markets hedger. I'm a workforce analytics guy. I, I'm, an, I'm an analytic. That's what I do. But what I'm really looking for out of that are the principles that come from that. So I'm not that interested in all of the relevant details, even though I think that'll be part of my process. I'm going to trust uh, what people have come up with. I'm really looking to share with you what are those core principles that come out of it uh, that we should be aware of. And, you know, Fox started to share some of those principles last episode in in, uh, rehashing that article that he shared with me. But um, so anyway, so just diving, but before I start diving into the uh, range and tables and numbers, I want to spend some time really understanding what are those fundamentals behind game theory and game theory optimal play. So if you or someone you know could add to that conversation, could really help clarify some of those concepts, some of those fundamentals, uh, man, I'd love that. Please connect with me, uh, Twitter, Facebook, stevefredland at gmail.com. Uh, I'm excited about the road forward. I feel a little bit convoluted right now. I feel like I'm probably uh, not clear in what I'm communicating to all of you, but uh, I welcome you along on this journey with me and ask for your patience. Uh, but maybe you can also help me clarify some things that will also in turn help clarify things for the entire audience that's out there. So that's it for today. I'm going to wrap it up there. Uh, I want to thank Running Aces again. Great weekly tournaments, great staff. They've got the big tournaments going on now. Uh, Check that out, runaces.com. Thanks to the Rex and the pros for giving feedback. If you really want to help me out, there's a couple of ways that you can do that. Get out on iTunes, like us, rate us, review us, comment, uh, share and tell other people about it. Subscribe to the podcast. But also financially, even a dollar a month would be great. Uh, But there's options, Patreon dot com slash rec poker uh, that'll help us expand and offer new things and uh, continue doing what we're doing uh, if you want to wear a patch let me know got those available if you want some cool merchandise uh, go to flop the slash rec poker and if you have any other feedback concerns questions comments whatever uh, facebook twitter uh, rec poker and also uh, email stevefredland at gmail.com and also uh, kind of in closing here uh, i am looking at expanding some of my uh, some of the ways that I can support people that are learning the game, especially. And so I am uh, looking at potentially some coaching situations. Uh, obviously, I'm not uh, at the level of coach. Uh, that people are going to look for. Uh, but if you are a rec player starting out, uh, kind of, you know, just trying to figure some things out, I think I've got some value that I can add there at a price that's maybe about a tenth of what uh, you'd pay a regular uh, coach. So if that's something of interest, please reach out to me. Uh, we'll work something out. I think even like some sort of an email coaching situation, I think I can help you, help you out quite a bit. And I can also uh, connect you with resources and even take some of your questions uh, to the masses. Uh, so if, if we have questions that we're struggling with, 
certain hand situation, uh, I can take those and get feedback for you from the Mike Schneiders and Jonathan Littles and Chris Fox Wallace and Matt Berkey's of the world. So uh, I think that could be a cool connection point too. So if you're interested in that, reach out to me uh, in that deal. But with that, I'm going to wrap up there. Thanks so much to everybody for your support. It's fun to see the numbers continuing to grow. And uh, all feedback is good feedback, so let me know what you think. All right, y'all. Have a good week.